Mary Center podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Over there is Alex. Welcome, everyone. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, I wanted to start off with... Uh, so I ended up watching the documentary about Don. Oh, yes. All right. <laughs> um, first, I guess, just, yeah, they don't know who killed him. I, it seems like that guy that they caught could have done it, but also probably not. You kind of see how he... It's possible he didn't, yeah. Um, but one thing that sort of struck me out of it, or that I took from the whole thing, was the aspect that you mentioned where he just started businesses and just kept... Yeah, it's a little fishy, isn't it? He, I think three or four different ones. Yeah. And I don't remember what the names were, but yeah. So it just it just kind of hit me. I, obviously, this is a spe- special situation, but how easy it was for him to just, or seemingly so at least to just start a new business. And I was thinking about today, <laughs> like what it takes to start a successful new business. Now that's aside from the fact of just like starting an LLC, which is actually decently easy to do. Yeah. But it just feels like today and obviously no frame of reference. So I'm entirely mm-hmm. speculating here, but you just have, you got social media, you've got all this technology. You can't mm-hmm. just like go down to the corner and set up shop with like, I don't know, some idea. Well, in his situation, we're talking... Crazy speed logistically, Yeah, logistically, he was starting a new company, but really, he's just, he's still well-known by everybody. He's That's true. got his That's true. business practices established. You know, he's basically just changing the name and, and starting over the paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> you know? The other, thing that, the other thing that really struck me was his comment about using your name in advertising. So it was Don's boat building or yeah. you know, Don's power boats. That way, when he sold the company for, to a new person, his, he was still associated with it. Right. Or yeah. they took his name out, which is works too. But the point is, is that anytime they saw his name, they knew it was, it was boat building. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was, so we're going to rename the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Good point. <laughs> All right, you heard it here first, folks. Um, pretty wild that they had uh, HW in there. Huh? Yeah, he was in there a bunch. A bunch, yeah. Yeah, I. And I, I was a little skeptical when you were telling the story about just like his involvement and whatnot, and mm-hmm. I guess I still am just from the perspective of he's obviously the president of the United States at one point. So if anybody's yeah. going to have the answers, it's him. You would think it would be him, yeah. And he's just like, no, I'm taking that to the Yeah, he's, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Shit's Shit's crazy. (laughs) Uh, But no doubt, with with hindsight, it seems obvious, but selling the business to, um, shoot. He got the the government contract with the one business, and then he sold that business to Frankie. Oh, to Ben Kramer. Ben Kramer. Ben Kramer. Right. I think Frankie. That was not a smart choice. Probably not. <laughs> no, I would. After all, I said that, that. That, that didn't work. I mean, you could argue that even being involved in the drug scene at all, probably not a great choice. But no, it doesn't usually. Pretty lucrative seem... at the time. It's hard to tell if that works out, right? Because if it does work out, we probably never hear of it. True. That's a good point. Wild story, though. That's yeah. for sure. There you go. Rant, yep. rant over. Cool, I'm glad you watched it. Yeah, it was fun. 
production value wasn't super high, but no, <laughs> they gave away, they gave away that he died too super early. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a good point. I think when... I knew that already going into the documentary, so it wasn't like it didn't stick out to me yeah, that much. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. And I guess for most people that would have been watching this on release, they would have known too because it it would have been a... probably. But yeah, I think it was. That's probably not one of those documentaries you just find by mistake and turn on. I think it was 55 minutes, and they gave that away at like the 22 minute mark or <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I mean. Their highest profile person, Done. George H.W. Bush, was literally three and a half minutes into the video he was on. Yeah. <laughs> Wanted to roll you in early. Anyway. All right. So I am going to kick this one off today. Um, I think you're going to enjoy this topic. Um, I want to talk about invasive species. Ooh. Yeah. That's a... <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. So, um, it's a lot of, definitely a lot of different things we can talk about here, but um, we'll focus on, I guess, U.S. examples for the most part, um, just due to audience, I suppose, but, um, and what we know best. I think, I think according to some of our analytics, we've got a couple people from Thailand downloading, so. Oh, well, <laughs> At least maybe that's... some of these things came from there initially. That's how they can be. There included. you go. <laughs> I don't know for sure, though, actually, on that. Um, all right. So, yeah. So what is an uh, invasive species? So according to the U.S. government, they define it as plants and animals or even microbes that are not native to an ecosystem that they are in and a the next important part of this is that they're likely to cause either economic, environmental, or human health, you know, harm. Right. One of those three things. So by the U.S. definition, an invasive species is um, definitely a bad thing. But, you know, depending on who you ask and, and who's defining it, um, it can be, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a non-native uh, species species to an area. It's kind of a hard word to say, over and over. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to cause harm. You know, you can have just, something, yeah, it, yeah, introduced to an area that wasn't originally there, but it doesn't necessarily. By um, definition, or at least by the strictest definition, it is invasive. Right. Even though it may not be. It might just cause change. It might not cause harmful change. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that's kind of up for debate. That gets tossed around, but. Um, yeah, the U.S. itself defines it as something that's harmful. So they're, those are generally, and that's probably what's you know best because those are the ones that need attention. So they're the ones that are going to get it. Um, so in general, when you're talking about an invasive species, it's something that, you know, like we said, it's something that's brought into its non-native environment or ecosystem, and it's generally associated as being you know quickly reproducing, really widespreading. Um, and then, like, difficult to remove. So, you know, all of a sudden a plant gets introduced that takes over all the other plants and competes for the same resources and out-competes, basically, and, and um, throws off the entire balance of uh, the ecosystem that it's now brought into. Which sucks. Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty wild. Because, I mean, if you think about an ecosystem... 
it, it, like in a in a vacuum, I guess that's totally undisturbed. It develops really slowly over time. Everything kind of has its place. It's extremely um, fragile. Maybe, yeah, and it's very balanced. Um, and there's, if you kind of go down that path of ecosystem research, you'll find that there's the level of how fragile they are can vary. You know, you have some that are very diverse ecosystems where something new coming in might, um, you know, not be as invasive as another ecosystem where there's really only a couple, uh, you know, organisms fighting for the, the resources. So when something new comes in, it, it throws it off completely right. and can even cause, you know, collapse. Yeah. I was actually, um, I was reading uh, some, it, it's a huge problem when an uh, invasive species comes into like an island where the, yeah, uh, yeah, a small island where the ecosystem is super specific to what's going on there and something new comes in and just wreaks havoc on the whole thing. Rats do that. Yeah. Um, there's a big problem with like back in the colonial seafaring days, you know, wooden ships and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I suppose mm -hmm. today too, probably. But yeah, mm -hmm. rats would, would stow away on ships and then get Definitely. onto like the Galapagos Islands or something and boom. Yep. Yeah, so um, yeah, so let's talk about kind of how, you know, some of the causes of these things. So, and actually, as I was reading, I was a little confused because they kept referring to, to everything as vectors. And I guess, um, yeah, the another name for the causes of some of these invasive species are vectors. Basically, oh, okay. the mean the means at which um, they're either introduced or whatever transported or whatever. Yep. Yeah. So the most you know the the most widespread one is definitely human intervention. We're the biggest cause of uh, you know this this issue, and that kind of can no, fall under two categories. Yeah. Right. Big surprise. And you might even argue that we're an invasive species, but that we can get into at the end. That's, that's too deep for this <laughs> podcast. I don't know what you're driving at. <laughs> we don't. We don't want to go there. Um, yeah. So as far as human intervention goes, it can either be purposeful or totally accidental. So examples of you know on purpose are things like pet trade. So bringing new animals in. You know, you might not have the thought the to, you know, I'm going to bring in this animal and it's going to invade this ecosystem. That might not be the thought, but you're purposely taking an animal from one place, bringing it to another for whatever reason. Um, and then another example of purposeful um, intervention would be like horticulture. So bringing new plants and seeds and stuff in for whatever reason. Um <clears throat> Accidental, uh, the biggest one is of what you already mentioned, is ship ballast water. Okay. Wow. So, yeah, so biggest. ships bringing, yeah, it's like the most, it's it's a huge deal. It's actually the, um, we can get into some more examples, but um, what's it called? I think uh, zebra crab? Zebra mussels. Zebra mussel, thank you, thank you. Um, those are... Yeah, those suck. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, maybe you know why they suck. That one I, I didn't get to read too much about, but I know they're infesting the Great Lakes, and they were totally brought in by um, ship ballast water in, I forget which decade it was in, but um, yeah, maybe you can expand on that one. Um, 
quickly. They uh, one, they're extremely sharp. So if you uh, step on one of these things while you're okay. prancing around on the lakes and having a good time, um, okay. it's gonna cut your foot open really fiercely. Like it sucks. I've never had it happen to myself, but uh, yeah, not good. Then okay. um, they do act as filters. So like in, in a weird way, they uh, certain links that they can get into, they uh, all of a sudden the water will be clear after a few years. Like they'll hmm. literally clean the water, which is kind of cool. Um, but they, uh, aside from being um, hazardous to your feet, they are extremely prolific in their reproduction. Uh, they just compete for neat resources that other mussels yeah. and, and native, you know, crustaceans and whatnot are going to be competing mm -hmm. with. And they, they, they're just, they're good competitors, basically. So they just yeah, out-compete yeah. everything. Um, Which is the case of most of these situations, right, I right. mean, by definition. And so. again, they, they, they go all over the place they mm -hmm. multiply like crazy which is often probably a tree you probably found is usually a, a, a particularly invasive species one of mm -hmm. the traits they usually have is they're really good at multiplying yeah so really good at multiplying able to survive anywhere will eat anything you know those are yeah have lots yeah lots of babies that are really resilient to changing environment so yeah um those definitely are common traits. So I would imagine with these zebra mussels, the filtering of the water probably looks cool, but in the end is a bad thing. Otherwise, yeah, if you're a catfish issue, right? you're or something out. and you've adapted to um, you've adapted to murky water and yeah. you are quite good at hunting in murky water because your prey can't see you, then all of a yeah. sudden the water's clear. You know, plus whatever it is that they're eating, I'm sure something else wants to be eating too. Potentially. Generally how these things work, right? But yeah, that's a good point too, the, the whole murky water thing. Um, 1988. I could Google it quickly. 88 is when it was discovered? Lake St. Clair. East Ooh, that's of, the one. Yeah, east of Detroit. Right here in Detroit, yeah. Yep. Which is not a great lake. I didn't <laughs> know that. <laughs> um... Yeah, so in general, before we get into some examples, I mean, you might be thinking, well, not you, but anybody listening to this might be thinking, you know, why is it a big deal if all of a sudden a new species comes in, whatever, it's diversity, right? But, um, yeah, they can totally decimate existing animal populations, plants, insects, and just you know, going back to how an ecosystem develops slowly over time, all of a sudden this thing is introduced unnaturally and it just totally puts a spear in the side of everything and everything's thrown off balance and you might end up losing, you know, in the most drastic sense, uh, or drastic case rather, you lose a whole species of animal or plant or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, spend a lot of money fighting it. Um, you know, it might even cause harm to the, uh, you know, geography, landscape, even human buildings can, you know, depending on the, the uh, species we're talking about. But yeah, there's a lot of money, time, effort, and damage associated with some of these. Um, so, Not to go with the zebra muscles too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, you're good. But I just wanted to reiterate, I, was, I looked as I Googled it, um, yeah. Like the prolific nature of these things is insane to the point where they clog like water pipes and stuff and they will completely, oh. they will completely cover the bottom of streams. So there's nothing but zebra mussels wow. on the bottom of the like stream. Like that's, that's now the, 
the floor of the stream. Right. And then the last thing I'll say, uh, I didn't know this one. This one's wild. Apparently, it's believed that they are the source of a deadly avian botulism poisoning that's killed thousands, tens of thousands of Great Lake birds. Whoa. They're edible, but because they're so efficient at filtering the water, they tend to accumulate pollutants and toxins. So when the birds eat them... Ooh. Yeah. Wow. That's, you know what that says. That just says how dirty the lake is. Right. Where that, I mean, that's that's not their fault. No. Anyway, sorry. But that speaks to... The, no, no, it's fine, because we're, I was about to get into examples anyway. Um, so we can just start with this one. Um, and that, I think... The fact that they're filled with the the toxins speaks to their resilience, which is what right? makes them such a great uh, invasive species because they're, they're literally eating garbage and they're fine with it. Yeah. So, have they? Did you see anything about them um, totally causing extinction of any other? Uh, on the contrary. Species? So, just the the interesting nature. Of this. this is a, quite a good topic, and one. I wish I had thought of this one because I, I love this kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> you can do your own version of it. There next we time go. If you want. Uh, so I'm stealing from Wikipedia right now, and this, but this makes perfect sense. Uh, zebra mussels and other non-native species are credited with increasing the population sizes of smallmouth bass, yellow perch, and other types of mm-hmm. fish. So, but now I, the thing is, though, is anything eating these things, you're not going to want to catch and eat one of those smallmouth bass. Right. Depending on the lake they're in, I mean. Yeah, I, I think they're how. most prevalent of an issue in um, the Great Lakes, but they're they're going to be all over the place. Well, so uh, before we get into the other examples, out here in Colorado, I'm sure this happens in other states as well, but it was my first exposure to it. When you go from lake to lake and you're bringing a boat, mm-hmm. the boat has a history of what lakes it's been in. Yep. And so if you go into a lake that has zebra mussels in it and you come out, you have to get it inspected and they put a non a tamper-proof tag on your boat that says what lake you came out of and date mm-hmm. and all that. And so depending on where you go next with your boat, if you go into a similarly, you know, same com- contaminated lake, you're, you're okay. Uh, but if you're trying to go into a cleaner lake, you have to go through this whole uh, cleaning process and get everything fixed up. Yeah, well, um, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, that that goes whether we're talking about zebra mussels or any other invasive species, Milfoil. primarily plants. But, yeah, it's super important um, to, you know, if you're kayaking or bringing boats to different places to clean and inspect everything, um, you know, if you have a boat that lives in the same lake all the time, fine. But if you're moving stuff from one place to the other, you got to clean it off, wash it off. Um, be pretty diligent about that. Same with um, even hiking. You know, let's say oh, yeah. you, yeah, if you hike somewhere in a different state, whatever, and then you come back, um, you use the same shoes. I mean, you want to make sure you're doing the same thing and you're cleaning all the dirt off and all that stuff. Um yeah, because any of these things can transport, uh, you know, with all these activities humans are doing. It's very easy to carry stuff from one place to another, so it's really important to clean your shoes, clean your boats. Um, I'm not sure what else you people are doing out there, but clean it <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, what other examples? Yeah, uh, okay, let's see. 
Um, okay, so I think this one, I don't know if this one's the most famous, but it seems to come up a lot. Um, I had heard of it, I'm sure you have, but it's called the kudzu vine. Oh, no. Never heard of that one? I'm a, I'm a fish-based type. Okay, well, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> water, water-based type guy. <laughs> okay, so this one is totally not water-based. It's on land. Okay. Um, <laughs> so this one I'm going to categorize categorize as somewhat intentional in terms of, you know, uh, the causes. So it was human intervention causing this whole thing, and it was somewhat intentional in the sense that um, it basically we brought it over as a decorative um, plant, and then it got out of control. Yeah. So the other... Cool. um, Yeah, the other name for it is actually the vine that ate the south. That's its nickname. Oh, shit. Yeah. So this this kudzu vine, it's native to um, eastern, southeastern Asia. And uh, it's now on our, we have a list of noxious weeds. I forget who maintains this list, some federal organization. But That's a great name for it. I know, list. isn't that crazy? I had to write that down because <laughs> it was, it was pretty fun. Um, yeah, basically anything that's invasive, dangerous, or even just annoying gets put on that list. Um, and I think ranked even, so it's on there. Um, yeah, so, and the reason it's, it's a problem is because just like other invasive species, it grows extremely quickly. Um, it competes for all the natural resources in the ecosystem that it's brought into. Um, but it basically kills off other plants, trees, shrubs, bushes by cutting them off from sunlight. Ooh. Yeah, so it grows so aggressively and just covers everything. I mean, you look at if you just Google this and you look at pictures, you're just gonna see stuff that's just covered with these vines. I'm gonna use um, the common name, the vine. <laughs> that eight. So to me, yeah, this is like this is like the plant version of suffocation. Oh, this is an invasive. Wow, that is a difficult word or set of words. <laughs> no, and you say it over and over again. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm looking at it. I've seen this plant many a times. Oh yeah, it's all. I over did not real. Wow, and uh, in its worst form, yeah, it literally consumes everything. Mhm. Yeah, so plant version of suffocation. It just completely cuts everything and beneath it off from sunlight and and just dominates. Um. So it's pretty intense. The kudzu vine. Uh, fortunately. It does have some positive uses when it's in a controlled environment. Um, it can be used for soil improvement. Um, animals will eat it, so you can use it as an animal feed. Um, not so much in the U.S., but in other places, more so like where it's actually originally from. Um, you can use it as human food. It's got like starchy roots and stuff, so you can make stuff from that. Um, the flowers are used sometimes to make jelly that tastes like grape jelly, apparently. Um, so stuff like that. So it does have some uses. It's not all bad. Um, but in the U.S., um, yeah, so the reason I guess it particularly is bad in the South is because winter is what normally keeps it at bay. Right. So when it was brought into the South, you know, that didn't really happen. Um, but yeah, so it was literally, there's something called the Centennial Exposition, which took place in Philadelphia in 1876, which is ironically not in the South. Um, but they brought this over 
and it was marketed to people as like a decorative plant that you could put on your porch and it's going to cause you some or provide you with some shade and it's going to look all pretty and whatever. Fools. Fools. <laughs> Fools. They bought it. They used it and it got crazy, out of control. Um, so what's interesting though is despite this being a renowned invasive species and, and supposedly a huge deal, the extent at which it is covering the U.S. is widely debated. So, as far as how quickly it can spread, it's, at first, they were estimating 150,000 acres per year that this stuff could spread. Mm-hmm. But now, I guess the most recent estimation is that it's actually only 2,500 acres a year, which is still a lot, but much less than 150,000. Um, and again, it was estimated at one point that this kudzu vine covered 7.4 million acres total in the U.S., uh, but now they think it might only be 227,000 acres. Again, a large number, but vastly different than 7.4 million. Sure. So I'm sure it's somewhere in between, if I had to guess, but... Um, yeah, so the extent of the problem, I don't really know, uh, you know, where it is. or how. It seems to be everywhere, and it looks like it's a big deal. I was going to say, the pictures look daunting. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild how quickly it can take over. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Do you, do you remember seeing it in, like, New York or anything? Because if it's there, and I don't doubt that it is... It probably dies in the winter I, and, you know, comes back, which is relatively okay. Our trusty friend Wikipedia actually shows the coverage map, and New York City is on the list. Okay. But upstate... <laughs> it's actually... That's pretty funny. What people in New York City would call upstate New York, i.e. everything other than Anything New York else. City. <laughs> oh, I'm looking at it. It's literally just <laughs> a little tiny tip down there of New York City. That's funny. <laughs> Isn't that interesting how, like, so I'm I'm looking at this map, and it's like the, um, what do they call that part of Massachusetts where it sticks out like that? Oh, I didn't realize south. it had a name. It probably does. The boot. <laughs> Is it because that's, like, a rich area and lots of fancy <laughs> stuff, and so they're using it still to, <laughs> uh, for its sure. original intended purpose? <laughs> Maybe. Oh, and then according to this map... Out there in uh, Oregon, just a couple little spots. Other That's rich weird. people spots. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, so I, the uh, the most effective way to remove this is just mechanical methods like mowing and cutting. I guess there are chemicals that have been developed for it too, but they don't really work as quickly. You know, it grows too fast for them to be all that effective um and also goats like to eat it so you can buy goats and hmm. have them eat your kudzu vine all right so next example up your alley and probably the most fascinating one fun to talk about is the snakehead oh yeah that's a, so that, you're yeah. gonna know probably way more about this than me even after i've done the research um so this is a freshwater fish and its introduction was intentional. And it, again, not in the sense that, hey, we want to make this 
want to fuck up this environment, but, um, you know, we're intentionally bringing this fish in because we think it's cool. Either that or, or humans have we committed. Want to eat it. Well, or that. Um, but we've made the mistake too many times of, hey, let's bring this animal to this place to accomplish this goal. And right. then, whoa, it didn't work out as planned. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess it's native to certain parts of Africa and Asia. Yep. There's like 40 different species of, you know, what we call the snakehead. Yep. Snake. They range from anywhere from ten inches to over three feet. Yeah, dude. In length. They they're like a, they're pretty long, slender-looking fish, almost they're, like a pike. Yeah, in body shape, right? They're well, yeah, yeah. I suppose their mouths could be. They're a little more rounded than pikes, but uh, mm-hmm. one of the distinctive features of them is the fact that the dorsal fin, the fin on the top, extends mm-hmm. it extends the length of pretty much the whole body, short of oh, the head. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, you're right. You're right. And then it also has a similar, uh, I don't know the real the real name, but uh, on the underside of the fish, similar to a dorsal fin, um, also extend, can can extend the whole length of the body as well. Okay. It's quite a beautiful, um, lots of uh, certain species of it have the most intense colors you're likely to see in oh, nature. Really? really like crazy blues and blacks. and. That's cool. I didn't yeah. look at... Um, it's a nice looking fish. fish. Here's a picture of it. Um Okay, yeah, you're right. So it's long and slender like a pike, but the fins are definitely much different. Yeah. Uh, it's got some spots on it, this particular one. Um, some of them can look just, you know, gray and, mm-hmm. and whatever, but some some snakeheads can be quite striking. But anyway. And to, and to add to their scariness, they're full of teeth. Oh, yeah, they. Uh, you do not want to get bit by one of these things at yeah, all. Yeah, they're, they're predators for sure. They. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so they tick all of the... Um, the, the checkbox list that we created before of what makes a good invasive species, you know, they, um, let's see, they lay up to 75,000 eggs in a year because they can breed five times a year, depending on the environment they're in. And they can be in plenty of environments clearly. Um, so yeah, so they're super good at breeding. They've got these teeth. They primarily eat other fish, frogs, um, but they'll, they'll eat anything really. If they can get their teeth on. Um, so they're definitely apex predators. And where it gets really crazy, and the story gets really fun, is that they've got this rudimentary old-school lung system, essentially. Uh, so they're required, actually, to breathe air through these lungs. So they they look like gills, but they actually similar, have to... Similar to a betta fish, actually. Like the betta yeah. fish that people keep in their homes, those things actually mm-hmm. breathe air. Yeah, or, it's or like these. Air, um, it's like these air sacs up in its head. Yep. Uh, so it actually has to take in this air. It's not. It's not like it can do, you know, regular gills or or air. They have to take in the air. Um. So this <laughs> this allows them to live out of the water for like four, three, four days, something like that. Yeah. So they have the ability to, unlike say the zebra mussel, which requires mm-hmm. it to be accidentally transported from point A to B, the snakehead can go from point A to B all by itself, assuming, of yep. course, uh, it's within three to four days. Distance. Yeah, so, I mean, let's say, just hypothetically speaking, you know, those those muscles had to get transported in the ballast water of a ship, you know, the, the ship that's just kind of down in the, the bottom of the boat just from it driving along. Um, 
It needs that to survive, whereas a snakehead, let's say it accidentally gets into, you know, the trappings of another type of fish, and it's transported two days to another body of water or wherever, and it slips out, and all of a sudden now it's into another environment. Um, so it doesn't necessarily need to be underwater for that whole time. Right. Getting even crazier is they can frickin' walk on land. Yeah. <laughs> well, walk might be the an exaggerated term. They, they could can they can go from one way. pond to the next. They can travel. Yeah, they're they're traveling. It says um, they've been recorded traveling up to a quarter mile in this you know time that they're able to spend outside of the water. They've been recorded up to a quarter mile. So yeah, definitely can travel. You know. Let's say you had, you know, a road bisecting two bodies of water. It can totally just cross that road and get into the next one, and you can see how that might be a problem. Yeah, think about a place like uh, where they're really bad, uh, Florida, where you've just got waterway after waterway. You know, they, yeah, they're never definitely. they're never coming out of Florida. That's that's nope. that's nope. done. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. With a lot of these, it's over. Um, yeah, it's more of, it's just a situation now of doing our best to control. It's not really an elimination effort because that's impossible. So it's more of just now a constant uh, moderation effort. So in the U.S. specifically, I think the most fun examples are the ones where we can point, pinpoint it down to like a specific example of either when they were, or a moment in time when they were either discovered or even if they know when it, the problem started. Right. Um, I guess this snakehead wasn't discovered in the U.S., and correct me if I'm wrong, but until 2002, literally in a small pond behind the post office in a town called Crofton in Maryland. I did not know somebody, that. Yeah, somebody discovered the first... Um, it's a, the species of snakehead that we're concerned with here is uh, the northern snakehead. So that's the one that's um, a problem in the U.S. specifically. Um, yeah, so I guess they just, I don't know if, it's most likely that it was a pet owner had one right. of these things and put it into this pond and Done. boom, problem started. <laughs> or maybe they put two It is wild to it think about. to breed, right? It is wild to think about. Yeah, you do. So there might be, but you know, it's wild to think about like there's a day where some dude had like six snakeheads and he's like, all yep. right, I'm just dumping these into this pond. And, and so there was a moment where he's got a, an epidemic. Yeah. I'm picturing this guy holding a cooler full of snakeheads and he's like, I, I don't know what to do with these. I'm dumping them in this pond and they're just slapping <laughs> into the water and tens of decades of problems. Well, an eternity really. Maybe. Yeah, maybe probably. I mean, think about the just like the the zebra mussels impact of that one event. Yeah, the zebra mussels that first ship to empty their ballast water. Some yeah. captain was like, "Yeah, do that," or maybe not even the captain. Maybe it was just <laughs> doesn't matter who it was. I'm uh, thinking about like going about like, my do, own do, do, day. Do. Yeah, I'm thinking about going about my own day and the amount of kind of thought I put into like, oh, okay, well maybe I'll use a less one less plastic bag here or make sure I recycle that or whatever. And then this motherfucker comes along <gasps> and in 30 seconds just causes a huge nationwide damage. epidemic. <laughs> yeah, irreparable damage. <laughs> With the same That's level crazy. of energy where you're like, right? I'm not going to take a plastic bag. Oh, it's wild. Yeah. 
It um, is completely <laughs> absurd. But goes. I mean, this isn't a good thing, but it does really highlight just how fragile the whole thing is. Yeah, yeah. That's why I think this is interesting to talk about because we can show how one seemingly small thing like that can just go so wrong. Yeah, and and to that, so if it really was in 2002 or around there, um, that's 16 years ago. That's crazy. 16 years ago, and now they're being found, you know, all over the U.S. from California to Massachusetts, everywhere. Now, it there's no saying that that was just the one spread from that pinpoint. (laughs) It's possible that somebody in California also released a snakehead because these things at one point got popular as pets. They became large. Realized yeah, they're that not a you good need to feed them fish. other fish. No, yeah. definitely not. They're actually outlawed now. You yeah, can't. They should. Um, yeah. Um, so the positive to snakeheads um, is that they are apparently delicious. People love eating them. That is what I understand as well. Never had the pleasure, yeah. but would love to. Yeah. So before they were a problem in the U.S., I mean, I'm sure they are still eaten in... Uh, you know, Asia and stuff where they're from, I guess they're they're quite the delicacy. But they're probably harder to come by over there because they actually are balanced and supposed to be there. Um, okay, so let's see. Next good one to talk about. So this one, I'm not sure if you had to rank, like, you know, the invasive species in the U.S. from severe to least severe where this one falls it might not be the most widespread but i know for you and i it's definitely very relatable is the water milfoil it's awful it's terrible so this is a you know plant that lives in the water um and this one was unintentional uh there's 69 different species of this milfoil plant water milfoil specifically um but there's three of which that are basically invading uh, the lakes and waterways of the U.S. So the reason this one's a problem is it's basically, I mean, think of it as the, the water version of the kudzu vine we were just talking about. Exactly. That's, yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. It, it creates these thick, like, mats of plant matter that just, they extend from the bottom of the lake or river all the way to the top. Actually, primarily lakes because I believe they need the still water. Yeah. I don't think they infect uh, rivers as much, but yeah, so they just come from the bottom up and they create these thick mats of plant and, um, you know, initially they're disrupting the ecosystem because just like all these other ones, they're competing for the natural resources and they're going to survive, you know, they're really good at surviving and they reproduce super quickly and they're competing for all those natural resources that the native species need. Um, in the extreme cases, they can actually trap fish. I've actually seen that myself. I don't know yep. about you. Yep. I've seen fish get trapped in these mats of, of plant. Yeah. If yeah. you're canoeing slowly mm-hmm. in a lake with uh, milfoil beds, it is mm-hmm. highly likely that you will come across like the, the local fish literally trapped in these things to the point where they're just succumb to their fate and they're just sitting in the in the beds near the surface basically mm-hmm. trapped and they freak out when you come by because obviously you're you're different than what's going on but yeah it's yeah. uh it's crazy like sunfish and yeah. stuff are just sitting in these beds because they can't they can't find they can't a way out. out they've ex- they're exhausted yeah. um 
Yeah, and if you don't really care about fish, um, but you like to do things like kayaking and stuff, it can it's going to interfere with that too because now all of a sudden can't move. You can't really kayak through this area because I mean, if you try to, uh, I mean, sticking your um, paddle into these things, it just gets caught and it's it's terrible. You can't really move through it. Um, yeah, just like the the kudzu vine, uh, not only are they taking the nutrients from the water in the ground, but they're also blocking out the sunlight for other plants and the yep. fish and everything. Um, yeah, so let's see. I think they were, uh, it was found in the 60s. The The exact cause is unknown. Like, we can't pinpoint it down to one event, but it's going to be like um, some of the others. It was brought over in a boat, you know, trailing a boat from one area to the other, something like that. It was brought over. Right. Um, one of the things that makes this one such a problem is the fragments of the plant can spawn new plants very, very easily. It's so, crazy, in fact, how yeah. prolific this one is. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can't just rip the root out of the ground and call it a day because any little bit that falls off could potentially spawn a whole new cluster. Um, yeah, so this one... This one is super important to make sure if you're trailering a boat around to check the trailer, even check the boat, check everything that is going in and out of the water from one place to the other. Um, let's see. So fighting this one, uh, there's, you know, herbicides and stuff that they, they've developed to fight it, but I think, um, mechanical methods are still the most effective. Yep. So it's that... it's pretty much a thing where like you're never gonna get it out of your lake, but if oh yeah, you, if you basically mow the lake with mm-hmm. this with these tools, you can you know mow the lake every few weeks yep. or so. You have to pretty much just get it down to a manageable level. You're never gonna get it all. Um, yeah, they have these things. There is something called a lake mower. Yeah, it's like a huge. Um, uh... I, I didn't get a chance to look up what they look like. I guess. It's... Imagine like a giant Ferris wheel, really. Like okay. in the sense that, that you, sense. you basically just have this giant rotating thing that has blades on it. Like uh, you know the the old push mowers. Actually, this is a better better mm-hmm. way to describe it. The old push mowers. It's an, effectively an, an aquatic version of that. Okay. Or at least that's that's the type of tool that I'm aware of. I'm sure there there might be better ones, newer ones. There's a couple. So there. <laughs> one called a weed roller which i didn't look up but there's one called a lake made that one i had to look up because that's a brand name um and it's basically this like autonomous system that you stick in the lake and it just kind of i don't know it it removes the weed somehow i'm not really sure but either way there's uh plenty of mechanical methods out there to uh to try to combat this um this is funny to me so you were mentioning earlier how we will bring in plants and animals and then it doesn't necessarily go to plan. Right. Some of the established methods for fighting milfoil are to just bring in other plants and animals. <laughs> so sounds like a terrible idea. Beetles called the aquatic weevil, they eat the milfoil. Okay. Okay, sounds good. Logically, you could, you could then say, okay, and then the bass will eat the beetle, maybe? Something tells me, though, that fighting one invasive species with another... <laughs> not, I'm not, I don't know if the aquatic yeah. weevil is, but 
I don't know. Sounds like it could be. <laughs> it just seems like a. a I think the only way, way that it. that has ever worked. This happens in New York. I'm sure it happens other places as well. But in New York, they um, they take the Asian grass carp, which yep, is uh, that was type... my next one I had. Okay, and they uh, they sterilize them. And oh. then, then they put them in the ponds okay. for weed control. So these grass yep. carp eat like a couple times their body weight in yeah, plants crazy. per day. Like yep. it's a ton. But New York wised up or, and, or some, maybe it wasn't, probably wasn't just the state of New York, but somebody wised up and said, hey, let's make it so that these things can't breed. So basically uh, that's quite an elegant solution to the problem of fighting yeah. one species with another. So I'm glad you brought up New York because um, I figured it would be appropriate to look into what we're doing, or we as in New York, specifically in the Adirondack Park, where this is a huge problem. Um, they've actually successfully been hand harvesting water milfoil because they decided that these chemical and mechanical methods are too disruptive. Yeah, totally. So they, they actually have trained divers who go in and physically remove by hand um, the water milfoil. And I guess it's been pretty successful. Again, not necessarily removing it 100%, but getting it to a manageable point. Yeah, I could um, see, like, I'm thinking about a lake that's round near where we grew up. And I could see <laughs> if you got, like... This would be a big effort, but, um, you know, you got like a hundred people together mm-hmm. and you said, all right, here's equipment and whatnot. And just go, let's go harvest all the milfoil. Cause one of the big things is you have to collect, you can't just rip it out. You've got to rip it out and collect, as you said, all the right. the little pieces, mm-hmm. but I could see, you know, with a hundred, 200 people, you could definitely knock out a, a good solid chunk of the lake. Yeah. Yeah, plus up there, I mean, I would imagine that, you know, if you start early in the season when it's less dense, it probably gets worse as the season goes on, and then winter comes and it dies back a little bit. Right. Obviously never going away, but if you start early, maybe it's it's more effective. But um, I guess the, the positive side to that is you're employing people to do this, which is maybe not a bad thing, but... Overall, it's probably not not a good thing. A cynic would say, though, that it's work that was never supposed to be there in the first place. Maybe so. <laughs> I don't um, know any cynics. <laughs> really? Um, so, I think I'm going to put up a, a link or two after the episode in, in our post when that comes out. So, keep an eye out. But there's a couple different... Um, programs and organizations dedicated specifically to invasive species in the Adirondack region. And you can go and like donate and help and, and do all that. Just pretty cool to see. Um, they're actually very, very active in keeping everything at bay up there. Not to say that they aren't in other areas of the country, but it was nice to see, um, multiple groups having an, uh, you know, effort in protecting the Adirondack park. So it was pretty cool. Um, okay, so the last one I collected a little information on was the Burmese python. So, snake, obviously. Um, this one, intentional, in that people wanted pythons as pets for whatever reason, and, um, yeah, then it, then it got out of hand. 
But apparently, so I thought actually before looking into this one, I thought that the problem was people releasing their pets, and I think that does happen and has happened in the past. Mm-hmm. But I guess the the accepted uh, singular moment in time when this became an issue was Hurricane Andrew in 1992 in Florida destroyed some zoo that had a python breeding facility. Oh no! And some little snakeys got out. Okay, so there you go, right there. That's so crazy. That makes perfect sense. And it's just like, oh, that's it. Pythons are in Florida now. We're done. (laughs) Right? Like, they were there, but they were totally under a controlled situation. And then it just got got ruined. Um, So, yeah, so you had that, which I think kicked things off. But then you also have pet owners releasing snakes. Um, So these have been outlawed in the U.S. in 2012, I believe. So you can no longer import um, python, Burmese pythons as pets, but they're already here, and they're not going away. Dude, they're so crazy. They compete directly with the um, alligators in Florida. Like, they will... Yeah, it's... I guess they get out of control. I don't... I didn't get a size um, stat on those. Not small, I bet. No, they're huge. They can get huge when they're completely uncontrolled. Um, I thought I had them. Didn't um, didn't one of our cousins have pythons at one point, or were they a different yeah. type of snake? Uh, well, I guess, yeah, I guess I don't know exactly what kind of snake it was, but yes, kept snakes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. And we can, uh, we're already at 50 minutes here, we can we can end it there. But there are tons and tons and tons of examples of... Well, um, the, the, real, the real huge one that I want to mention real fast yeah, yeah. Uh, is the Asian carp in the Mississippi yeah. River. Yeah. Oh, so man. those, those are the fish that, that if, you've ever seen vid- if you've ever seen videos of somebody going down the Mississippi River and there's fish jumping out of the water, smacking the driver of the boat in the face... That is the Asian carp, the white mm-hmm. carp. And I haven't checked lately, but the short of the story is what I can't remember how it made it in there. I think it was purposely introduced as a, for whatever reason. Um, and so they've been so scared of, and rightly so, of those fish making it into the Great Lakes that they've instituted all kinds of like fish alarms and like just actively watching the water uh, probably rewarding people for killing them oh for sure yep. yeah um but again they check all those boxes and these things mm-hmm. these things outcompete the local natural animals like just so brutally it's insane yeah. and so yeah these things are are totally destroying the mississippi river and if i had to guess unfortunately uh if they aren't already they're probably going to make it to the Great Lakes. Oh, it's probably a matter of time. Yep. Um, some other interesting ones that just rattle off real quick. People can go look up uh, if you're interested. The cane toad. People have probably heard of that one. Um, that one's a huge problem in Australia, if I remember right. Um, it yep. was brought over like in the 50s or something to con- as like a way to control other pests on farmlands, and then they totally took over. One of the issues with those is that their skin secretes this 
toxic substance, so when other creatures try to eat them, things die. Perfect. Um, yep, and then they obviously tick all the other boxes, so they reproduce like crazy. Um, one that I did not know about, which makes total sense, the common European rabbit, you know, the cute little bunnies that you see literally Dude, they're everywhere. they're everywhere here, yeah. Yeah, those are an, those are an invasive species. I did not species. know that. Yep, makes sense. They're on the list. Um, everybody knows with how those reproduce. Um, let's see, some others off the top of my head. There's some beetles, some lizards. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's any that you want to mention, but that that's pretty much no, I think you got it. what I got down. It's a, it's an interesting world, and is it a problem, as you said? Literally, not yeah. just America, but every single... Every single area. Once international shipping became a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you might think that, like, okay, let, let's just go and eliminate some of these things. But it's actually not that simple. Not only logistically of actually eliminating them, but um, counterintuitively, once these invasive, invasive species freaking hey, are brought in, they become part of the ecosystem now. So sure, sure. Just blanking them out of existence is going to also disrupt just as much as bringing them in in the first place. So it's not, it's not that simple. So um, the the Barry Center here, <laughs> I'm sure at one point, but well, maybe there isn't. Uh, when fighting these invasions, mm-hmm. uh, I wonder if anybody has tried to set any rules around the war that is being waged upon these invasive species. You know, how many ball pythons can you kill in a day? How many snakeheads can you kill in a day? Oh, how probably. can you, how can you kill these snakeheads? How can you kill these zebra mussels? But, um, hmm. I don't know if probably not, because especially with those sorts of things, getting rid of well, as many I, as possible. Actually, well, I would say yes, because, in the Adirondack Park, they've deemed the mechanical and chemical methods of destroying Good milfoil point. Good point. not worthy, so they have to resort to... So while getting rid of it is the goal, there are mandated means of doing so. So you might say that they applied the Geneva Protocol of 1925 to the milfoil epidemic, which outlaws the use of chemical weapons. You might say that, because you know what it is. <laughs> I, I don't know that. what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah my topic um is the rules of war and more specifically the the geneva conventions which i didn't actually know this until looking into it is actually just a conglomerate of some different conventions over the years and then ultimately hmm. there were something actually called the geneva, geneva conventions that happened after world war ii um but the Gen- what we commonly refer to as the Geneva Conventions, which mm-hmm. loosely means the sort of internationally accepted rules of war or the law of war, that uh, actually really? references... That's what that is? Yeah. That actually that. references uh, a few different things. Okay. One of those being the Geneva Protocol of 1925. Hmm. So before right, we get into some of the actual the facts about it... Um, it just struck me as absurd. I think this might be labeled a pacifist type view, but either way, just the term, the rules of war, and like the concept of 
applying rules to war seems absurd. It does seem absurd. Yeah. Not, it's not like if you're going to if you're going to do this horrible thing, why all of a sudden is it reasonable to put limitations on it like Exactly. It doesn't make it it doesn't make it more okay. So the I tried to like think through this and what I came up with was like So there's really no stopping somebody who's evil. Right? Somebody who's evil is going to use chemical weapons. So let me back up. Chemical weapons <laughs> are banned. You can't use them. Right. But somebody who's evil right. enough and and is has goals that are not uh, or that are just evil or whatever, you know, they're going to use chemical weapons if they really want to. It's not going to. Mm-hmm. If that's uh, what they, if that's what's most effective. Right. For their goals or whatever. So, taking those group, that group of people, let's just set them aside. Mm-hmm. If you're a country or a person or a general or whatever that is going to engage in war but you're gentlemanly enough to follow the rules of war. Can't we uh, progress one step further and just skip the war and be gentlemanly and discuss? Like if you're right, I would like to think so. If I the just only can't... where my mind went as you were introducing it was um, it's almost just a way to officially hold somebody accountable for certain actions, I guess. Like, sure, yeah. By setting those rules, it's not that you expect everyone to follow them, but by somebody breaking them, you have a formal way of reprimanding them for it. Maybe? That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. I would, I would but put still, that in the right column. I still agree with you, like... I'm going to kill you gently is what I'm thinking. Like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Just kill the exactly, person if that's exactly. what your goal is. Yeah. I don't know. The, your, your point, though, your angle is, is good, though. I was thinking really about, like, following the rules. And if you're going to follow the rules, like, mm-hmm. what, why kill? It just... No, the, I agree with that. I agree the desire that. to The desire to engage in war and the desire to follow rules of that war seem... I mean, the nature of war is that we have a dispute. Right. But now we're agreeing on something. Right. So we're agreeing on the rules of the dispute. (laughs) Let's murder each other. (laughs) Like, you know, when you say it out like that. And so it's funny because one of the original, one of the, um, like, first uh, rules of war was, like, trying to define... um, You know, you you should only attack your neighbor... If you're looking to conquer them, you shouldn't just attack people to kill people. Like that was a, at one point, that was like mm-hmm. a, a thing that somebody put down on paper and tried to get like ratified. Mm-hmm. You should only, you know, you can conquer them. That's cool. But you shouldn't just bloodless, you know, bloodlust murder people, which is true. But, you know, it's crazy. I mean, <laughs> trying to think of other things okay so what's something else we have rules for let's driving uh, i was going to say like a game like you know football or something you have okay you have rules because um if you don't follow the rules it's determined unfair and cheating you have an unfair advantage so not that war is a game necessarily i guess in some sense it is but um 
I see. I, I think I'm, I know where I'm you're trying, going. I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head here, and it's not going well. Oh well, I think <laughs> I know where you're going, and and what I would counter before you even get there is that one of the other problems I have with putting rules around war is you're sort of passively agreeing to its existence by defining it. Mm-hmm. You're acknowledging that it exists and have chosen not to try to eradicate it, but rather control it, which. Sure depending on your view of human nature, could potentially be a perfectly altruistic thing to do. You recognize right. that humans will it engage in war. needs to be there, so let's right. do it as best as possible. Right, right. Hmm, hmm that's a good point. So, um, Ooh, one of the deep. very first... Wait, I thought you said things like this were too deep for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is... think too hard. Yeah, yeah. So one of the first, very first known... Uh, laws of war is from the Old Testament and it deals with um, acceptable collateral and environmental damage and essentially it's uh, it says that if you're besieging a town mm-hmm. don't cut down the forest around the town because once the battle's over you've destroyed their means with which to live so don't destroy the farmland don't destroy the trees don't you know, if the town That's... and the con- basically trying to separate the the government goal, yeah, you know the the conquering nature of war from the actual destruction. Hmm. So, do with what you will to the buildings and the man-made stuff, but leave their ability to recuperate alone. That's, That's but again, if your real goal is to destroy your enemy. Uh, why would I? Why would you leave them the means to recuperate? Yeah. Well, I guess taking a step back, what what are the different goals that you might have by engaging in war? It might not be to destroy. That might not be your only goal, right? Yeah, of course, it could be to show your force and just right. get somebody off your back. You know, fight a right. couple battles and show that you know, especially if you win those few battles. Um. Just you to might kind of just increase deter. your place in the world, right? But I mean, I don't know. I don't honestly know if there are that many reasons for war other than defending yourself from being attacked. You know, you weren't the aggressor, but if you are the aggressor, I mean, really, what do you? I don't. Yeah. Why, well, you know? I mean, also you can have wars started by kind of unintentionally, right? Yeah, silly, you know. Um, you could argue you know, somebody, World War One somebody does something. With... Yeah, somebody does something that they don't necessarily expect to start a world war, but it's something that other people don't necessarily like too much. So now all of a sudden it's chaos. Everybody reacts. Um, hmm. But then, even then, I, I would say to you that if a year into that war, everybody gets together and goes, wait a second, why are we fighting this war? If, if nobody, why did somebody go? Okay, we don't know why we're fighting this war, but we're already here. Let's let's put rules around it. Let's get the other side yeah, to agree to yeah. some rules rather than getting the other side to agree. I mean, we're we're generalizing here, uh, obviously. Moments. Well, I I think of, think about like when you're doing something in your own life that you are 
passionate about because I would imagine that if you're a commander in a war that you are, for whatever reason, passionate about war, you get caught up in that thing, whatever it is, doing it, whether it makes sense to other people or not. Um, you know, you're learning to play guitar right now. You get super wrapped up into it. Somebody else on the outside might think, like, why the hell are you doing that? What's your purpose? What's your gain? Yeah, you tell them to fuck (laughs) yourself. I'm into this. So I would imagine that um, you're a year into this war, and the people that are involved in keeping this war going are so engrossed in the whole thing that it's probably pretty difficult to take a step back and go... (laughs) What are we doing? <laughs> I definitely think that's the case. Um, and and just to reiterate, you know, we're taking a very, or I'm taking a very uh, objective and hindsight-rich view totally. of the situation. Yeah. You're right. Human right. nature, especially in moments of incredible stress such as war, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to get weird. Well, yeah, because, I mean... Think about it. If break it down to, we're talking country-on-country, country, potentially warfare here. Think about on a micro scale, relatively speaking, somebody comes and, you know, starts messing with your house or your property or whatever it is, your immediate reaction is not probably to step back and go, ooh, how could I have avoided this? Or what are the rules here? Your immediate reaction is to defend yourself. Yep. Right? That's human instinct is to defend what is sure, yours sure. or whatever. So it's just that on a larger scale. It is. And that that sort of aligns with the idea that, okay, human nature is to wage war. The mm-hmm. best thing that I can do is try to curtail it with these rules. Right, Which again, right. if you listen to that type of thing, and I guess part of me, I, I could see how you, you could never get the war out of humans. I could believe mm-hmm. that to be a thing. So yeah, I, I don't that. necessarily disagree with, with attempting to put rules around it. Sure. But ultimately, when you try to, to dissect the argument down to it... It does seem silly. It does really seem <laughs> silly. Yes. So, um, and feel free to bring up the, the philosophical aspects of it as we go here. But I'll run through some of the... Uh, recent more modern attempts at this um like i said so the old testament contains uh the first known written down version of trying to define this sort of stuff um Mm -hmm. but as it pertains to our current life things really started in actually 1859 but we'll get there in a second um i don't honestly know how to say this the haug convention H-A-G-U-E. It's a Dutch word. I just... I'm putting sure. the I'm putting the U in the wrong place, honestly, but it looks like Haug <laughs> to me. Haug. Okay, you spelled it. <laughs> um, so these are conventions. Uh, first one in 1899 and the second one in 1907. First one called to order by a Russian guy, Nicholas II, and the second one in 1907 called to order by Roosevelt, Theodore. Hmm. So the first one... Um, was a series of international treaties again 1899 um negotiated in the haug which i believe is a building in the netherlands and it was based on lincoln's lieber code or liber code depending on how you want to pronounce that uh, of 1863 so abraham lincoln mm-hmm. and that code described um 
behavior in times of martial law, so protecting civilians, uh, property, deserters, hostages. So basically, Lincoln, for the Civil War, tried to like put rules around it. Okay. And so that document that he created, um, I don't know how it ultimately... I didn't get this deep, but I don't know how it ultimately became like the one, uh, mm-hmm. other than the fact that I think it was seen as being successful at the time, and sure. it just it just all lined up well. It was convenient. <laughs> yeah. So you could summarize this one sort of into the the respect for human life. So like prisoner exchanges, how to handle spies, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was ratified by uh, I want to say like twenty or so countries. Um, and then, but it did do some interesting things. Um, and some of the, the bullet points that we'll go through in my part here are just like some of the stuff that these, one of the really fascinating things about the modern application of the rules of war is how specific Mm -hmm. they get. So in ancient times, as I was doing my research, I'm sure I'm sure some of these were lost and, and my argument here could probably be refuted, but the rules were more, uh, I don't want to say general, but on a larger perspective. So only attack your neighbor for purposes of um, political gain instead of just mm. straight murder. Right. Uh, re- basically covering like reasons of war and other things. Okay. I guess the one that I, I, I outlaid with the, the trees is more specific, but when you get over to the modern times, it goes down to the level of you can't use uh, hollow point bullets. Do you see what I'm trying uh, to say? Like, yeah, so, yeah. Right. So that's incredibly specific down to like right. literally the type of ammunition being used. So 1899, mm-hmm. the first convention um, did six major things i'm well that's generalizing too but um some of the really interesting ones were the fifth declaration uh it did prohibit the use of projectiles that their sole objective was to spread poisonous gases so Hmm. you couldn't use artillery shells that had poisonous gas in them uh and launch them you couldn't use bombs that were discharged from balloons or other new uh, methods that are similar. The, what was the other one? Oh, and uh, also this one, like I just mentioned, uh, this one covered hollow point bullets. You can't, uh, so 1899, they said you couldn't shoot bullets that once they uh, got inside the human body, they changed their form is what the official language says. Yeah. (laughs) So that one specifically, like, you're still shooting. You're still allowing you're still bullets shooting at each to enter other. somebody. So is it really that much better? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's just like basically. What obviously, that says, you don't want to. You don't want to die. Nobody wants to die inhumanely, but you're still shooting it, deliberately killing people. Basically, so in, what that says by nature, that's inhumane. In, <laughs> in, in practice, yeah, it is. In practice, what that means is that when I get hit. If I were to get hit by a bullet that mm-hmm. is fully jacketed is the term, meaning it's completely encased in metal, it's not a hollow point bullet. That mm-hmm. bullet is going to enter me and hopefully exit right out the back. Mm-hmm. And that is actually a better way to get shot 
then um, if the bullet hits me and effectively mushrooms and tumbles around inside of yeah, my body, sure. it's going to do way more damage. But, I, but still the, the goal, I still got shot in the stomach. The goal of shooting somebody is to kill them, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Generally, and at least Generally in a war speaking. situation, you're not <laughs> shooting somebody to like wound them. Not usually. I mean, no. I know that that happens, but on a much more micro scale than war at large. I don't know. That seems so Crazy. bizarre. <laughs> uh, one of the other interesting ones that this one tried to do uh, was the it it finalized hospital ships in terms of you know a hospital ship out at sea with a giant red mm-hmm. red and white cross. You know, don't shoot at them. Mm-hmm. The second one, called to order by Roosevelt in 1907, um, basically the same thing. You know, they all got together and they're they're trying to come up with this stuff. It was originally proposed to happen in 1904, but because of the war between Russia and Japan at the time, uh, it was postponed to October 1907, <laughs> um, and it further refined and expanded basically the first one. That's really okay. That's really a major takeaway there. Excuse so me. it's kind of wild to me that, you know, like most rules, they're put in place after somebody does the thing that you don't want them to do, right? You don't sure. just think about the rule because, oh, that sounds like it would be bad. You know it would be bad because somebody's tried it. Right. And to that direct point, we'll jump back in time a little bit. Um, the... Geneva Protocols really started in, um, I'm sorry, the Geneva Convention and the stuff mm-hmm. that's contained within what we now call the Geneva Conventions first started in 1859 when Henry Durant, uh, was an author, basically, or an everyman, <laughs> whatever, um, witnessed the conditions of a hospital, a wartime hospital, in mm-hmm. after a battle and okay. ended up writing a book. And in that boat, in that boat, wow! In <laughs> they that were zebra muscles, <laughs> <they were, laughs> <laughs> and they were terrible. Everybody's feet, everybody's feet were just destroyed. And the end. <laughs> um, so, in this book, after after seeing this, he uh, proposed a permanent relief agency for humanitarian aid in times of war, and then also um, a government treaty recognizing the neutrality of that agency. And this was the origins of the Red Cross. That idea built the mm-hmm. Red Cross, and he mm-hmm. was given the first Nobel Prize ever. Damn, really? Yeah, pretty well, dope, actually. Cool. That's that is like pretty dope. that's a good human moment. Huh? But as you stated, born <laughs> born out of oh my god, this is awful. Right? Yeah. So 1859 is when that started. Um, so the Red Cross and that sort of stuff happens, and there's a there's a Geneva Convention around that time, and some rules are set. So then we get to the the Hague Convention. I'm definitely saying that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> then we get to the conventions. You're of the 18... only one correcting you right now. So. <laughs> then we get to the conventions of 1899 and 1907. Those happen. World War One's ha- Wow, struggling. World War One happens, and every rule in the book is broken. Every single. Oh, one. really? Oh, yeah. I mean, World War One had mustard gas. It had shooting, yeah, shooting right. doctors. It had terrible <laughs> everything. World War One was 
just, just really and what were the repercussions of that? Absolutely nothing. Right. Objectively, I mean, every now and then somebody is put on uh, war trials and and is actually, you know, put in jail. I guess, uh, but you know, one especially in the case of the world wars, it's most of the atrocities are never addressed. Yes, especially after World War II, we had the big trials where we put mm-hmm. you know certain people on trial, but ultimately, was every single atrocity accounted for? Absolutely not. Yeah, and being tried is probably not what you're... You're already committing one of the worst things I could think of doing and just partaking in war in general, right? So yep. are you really that worried about... <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. So after World War One. The next major event in this sort of timeline is uh, the Geneva Protocol. So this is 1925, mm-hmm. and this one really gets into the nitty-gritty of uh, chemical weapons. This is like Ooh, the, the okay. first real serious... What? Well, not the first. The, the how conventions tried to be serious, but didn't work. So yeah, the Geneva Protocol... Um, really prohibits the use of asphyxiating gases or or anything of the like okay um and was updated in 1972 by the biological weapons convention and then again in 1993 with the chemical weapons convention okay (laughs) what what did you do today oh i was at the biological weapons convention (laughs) talking about some pretty important business yeah so that was 1925 and then so after um, after World War II, we had the final set of Geneva Conventions where essentially they tried to wrap everything up and put a big bow on it and say, okay, this is, you know, this is how it is going forward. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of where we sit right now. You know, we refer to the hmm. Geneva Conventions and those laws are right. the ones that are on the books right now. Okay. So officially, the Geneva Convention is the conventions is a collection of four treaties and three additional protocols that establish international law and uh, for humanitarian treatment during war. Um, defines the rights of wartime prisoners, uh, the wounded and the sick, civilians, all that. Um, it's so, like a way for everybody partaking to just feel a little bit better about themselves. Yeah. About the whole and, thing. And, I mean, we learned a lot in the World Wars. You know, World War One was very unique. The trench warfare thing was really crazy. World War Two was really crazy for, mm-hmm. obviously, like, un- un- unbelievable amount of reasons. So much death and yeah. awfulness. Uh, but some of the weapons that were used in World War Two, and some of the ways certain countries and or nationalities treated each other, it was just... You know, people were so horrified that I I have to guess that one of the coping methods, just like as a collective, we were just like, we have to, we have to do something. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I'm not down for making a horrible thing less horrible. Of course. It's just a very interesting psychological thing to think about. Just the idea of applying rules to this type of thing. And what's interesting too is... um, in certain ways, some of the rules have sort of worked. Um, okay. There, 
it, it's widely accepted that Hitler had um, had chemical weapons, and there was a, a whole big buildup of them. Mm-hmm. But he never used them because he was worried about poking the bear, just how aggressive the response would be. Because we had our, the allies had their own chemical weapons as well. So, but that one, you could argue the rule was not so much being followed because it was a rule on the books. More, they were avoiding mutually assured destruction. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they, despite it being a rule, they both still developed and, and held Yes, Seven they had weapons, them. So. Yep. Yeah. Um, hmm. World War Two could have easily turned into a chemical weapons war if the wrong thing had happened. Yeah, that's that's nasty sounding. And the same thing happened. Uh, you know, uh, the Geneva Conventions were updated. You know, for the for nuclear war as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and thing. I guess one thing by limiting something, you know, like chemical weapons, you're you're restricting the potential damage to people not involved in the war. Like, you know, there might be a war going on, but you and I don't necessarily have to agree with it or want to be a part of it. So, um, some of these rules might, you know, limit the impact it has directly to people, you know, outside of the war situation. So very true. Definitely Um, that part of it. And there's also, uh, you could say similar to that ancient rule, you know, with like chemical weapons, once the war is over, you'd like mm-hmm. the war to be over. Mm-hmm. Whereas with chemical weapons, you might be, or nuclear weapons or landmines, especially, you're poisoning the land for yeah. decades after it's, yeah, right. After the war is over. So, in that sense, that's a good point. You could say that the rules of war are in part there to keep the war within the war, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. Right. Which again, yeah, a, a way of controlling it. If you know what's going to happen, you might as well know, do it right. as cleanly as possible. If you know what's going to happen, might as well try to. Mm-hmm. Do you know of any? Um, actually, wait. Before I ask that question, um, you said that. You know, you mentioned where we kind of are with our rules now. Do you think that there's we're coming up on? You know, due time for an update or additions to or anything like that. Any word on that? Probably not. I mean, anybody tried anything been... fishy that needs to be addressed? No, I. You could say that that digital warfare is probably one that is a new type of Ooh, warfare. Good... That yeah, yeah, you're right. But the problem with digital warfare, or not the problem, the aspect of it that kind of makes it. I don't necessarily see rules happening around it. Is it's really relatively new. It also doesn't. This is. The goal of it is that you can't really control it. Well, you can't really control it, and you could argue in a certain sense it doesn't necessarily directly kill people. Yes, if you hack into a hospital and turn off all the power to the hospital, you're directly (laughs) killing people. But stealing someone's information doesn't doesn't really kill them necessarily Mm -hmm. directly. So if you put a rule that says don't steal – we already have that rule. That rule exists. We have laws in the book that says Russia, don't steal our stuff. (laughs) <laughs> and then they're oh, like, my. yeah, but we're going to do that. Yeah, right. Mm, that's an interesting one to think about. But yeah, I would say digital warfare is probably the yeah. only new thing that you could argue needs something, but I would Ooh, count I, I wonder if there's any um, rules, though, going to come up around, like, drones. 
and Ooh, autonomous good call. Uh, yes i think like that, that would be autonomous good. weapons yeah that oh autonomous weapons good oh uh didn't elon musk and a bunch of people just sign i saw this headline the other day elon musk and a bunch of other like high profile entrepreneurs and whatnot in that space signed mm -hmm. a uh, declaration or whatever it was to not develop uh autonomous weapons really Good, excellent observation. I, you beat me at my own topic. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Um, I mean, that's all nice and stuff, but just like in some of your other examples, that doesn't mean it'll be followed. Right. So, but it's, I guess, nice to think about. Do you have any examples of rules that we had set and then later, you know, retracted? Like, we decided it didn't need to be there anymore? Uh, no, I never came across one that was explicitly taken away. Like, you know, it was not okay to kill somebody this way, but now it is? <laughs> no, I did not come okay. across that. It's um, just a growing list. Well, it's a growing list, but that, that list often, at least over the human history, was was destroyed because one civilization would conquer another, and they would throw out their list. And potentially start from scratch with no list. Sure. So at that Geneva Convention, um, one of the interesting ones, um, what, one of the more like just again the real specific nature of, of some of these rules, uh, that one defined the uh, attacking of persons parachuting from a derelict aircraft. <laughs> so it is illegal to if i'm Wait, what does that mean derelict if, aircraft if my aircraft is in a bad state and i'm bailing out of it because it's going down oh shit okay you can't shoot me as i parachute to the ground <laughs> and when okay. i land come on you have to give me a reasonable chance to surrender you can't if i now if i'm parachuting and <laughs> and as i'm parachuting or as soon as i hit the ground i start shooting all bets are off but um <laughs> Yeah, if I jump out of a burning aircraft, even though you're the one that potentially shot down my aircraft. Yeah. Well, if okay. I, if I jump out of said aircraft, you have to make me a POW if you capture me. You can't kill sure. me. I mean, it sounds dumb, but let's. the goal is to get rid of the aircraft, right? The right, person, the damaging weapon, right. That's the damaging weapon. The person, until otherwise noted is not the harm themselves, right? So by right. so you shouldn't kill them, right? They're not necessarily that's senseless killing. Right. Until like you said they start trying to shoot up the place. Then <laughs> that's the difference between shooting somebody bailing out of an aircraft versus shooting ground troops or something. They're the weapon in that situation. So that one in the context of what we're talking about makes sense. Yep. Yeah, it does. It and if I were a parachuting person and I were falling through the sky and after having been shot down and I'd Actually, be Actually, you very know what? Happy. Just, just shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's just end it. Yeah, I'd be pretty pumped for people not to shoot at me yeah. as I was falling and I would totally surrender because... No, that's a lie. I would engage in guerrilla warfare. <laughs> I would become a tree person and do as much damage as possible. One of the other outcomes of the 1949 convention was the white flag. Surrendering? Yes, the whole, just the the official documentation that a white flag signifies, hmm. uh, you know, I'm out. Is there a specific 
Does it have to be RGB zero 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 for it to be a white flag, or <laughs> it does like have off to be white? A, yes. Doesn't count. It does have to be a reasonably white flag. Like you can't right. use a gray flag. It won't. It... All right. Before you are recognized as having surrendered, we are going to test the color profile of this flag. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's that's legally recognized. So yeah, that's I suppose that's we've we've run through most of uh, what I prepared. Ultimately, it's it's just a it's a it's a tough topic. Like as as I think we've explored, there's mm-hmm. so many angles. At first, you might be like, this whole thing is dumb. Why do we do any of this? But then, as soon as you bring up the test case of the person parachuting out of a a downed yeah, aircraft, right? You're like, okay, all right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it, for me, it comes down to making, like I said before, something horrible less horrible. Yeah. Which isn't bad, <laughs> I guess. it. Yeah. One of the other uh, things I wanted to bring up, and this isn't just with the Geneva Conventions, but uh, it's kind of a cool thing, and I think a, a good, you know, progress with humanity. Uh, we're at the point where international law is uh, is under the sort of jurisdiction of silence as consent. So if 50 countries get together in modern day uh, world mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and ratify something, and I'm, I'm making the 50 number up, honestly, I can't remember what it is, uh, but let's say NATO gets together. Mm-hmm. And you have... They just uh, did. Yeah, they just did. Um, <laughs> actually, you know what? Let me take that back. I'm not sure NATO because Russia is not part of NATO. You know what? I'm, I'll, I don't honestly know what it would take to institute another one of these today, but let's scrap that. Point is, is that things like the Geneva Conven- Convention mm-hmm. are at the point today where you don't even have to acknowledge them as a particular country uh-huh. as long as you don't actively state that you're against them you can be tried in the court of international law for breaking them so if you're a brand new country and you come on the scene and you commit an act that breaks a geneva convention Mm -hmm. even though you never signed the treaty to say yes i accept these rules you can be tried for it but ultimately who's holding me accountable like there is actually if i just disagree until no end then there is an actual court of international law. Uh, that's a whole other topic and day. Hmm. But uh, hmm. there is it, there is such a thing. Of course, that that court only. But if I'm choosing not to participate in your war laws, why would I choose to participate in your stupid international court? Because we're kind of we're we're sort of at this weird point in human history, I think, where uh, we're trying to get this global thing to work. Yeah. And we've kind of made a decision where a whole bunch of powerful countries have said, yeah, this is what we're going with. And if you're mm-hmm. not on board, sorry, we're we're bigger than you. Yeah. It's just a. Uh, hmm. Because you're right. The, this court. Of yeah. Do you, do you want to survive as a country or do you want to, um, you know, disagree with away. this? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> we will break our own laws to make you follow. <laughs> Ooh, true. Um. 
but yeah, so there is a court of international law, and uh, that's that is a whole thing. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I just thought the silence as consent, because that wasn't the case originally. You know, whenever originally was, but let's say 1850, if you didn't, if your name wasn't on a treaty, that you know there was no court of international law. So mm-hmm. nowadays, if you're a brand new country, you can't. There is there is some structure in place to prevent you from just going buck wild. Right. There's no disagreeing. Right. Hmm. Which could be a good thing or not. Could be. Yeah. But now you have let's people say, hate being told what to do, though. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm in general. I would assume these rules are all good and a positive thing. But let's say you have one rule that's for whatever reason hypothetically speaking, a bad thing, but you have all of the world agreeing on it, no questions asked, then that could, you know, ultimately end up being a negative worldwide. Right. Right. Interesting topic. I would say the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, I think I'm good. I don't know if you... uh... If anything else you want to say on the topic? Uh, no, I think I, uh, I explored it as best I could. Okay, um, I think we might have a well. No, I think we'll we'll try to record something in the next in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. But we may have a an irregular schedule in the coming weeks. Yep. Two two to three, but uh, do try our to best. Make work. Yeah. Yep. All right. Thanks for living. Oh my goodness, we're cutting that. this is the end this is the end when the music is coming in and people are not listening anymore (laughs) goodbye everybody you've already checked out peace